Chapter Eighteen, Part Ten of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Eighteen: The Kingship in France, Part Ten. One special fact in the civil and municipal administration of Saint-Louis deserves to find a place in history. After the time of Philip Augustus, there was malfeasance in the police of Paris. The provostship of Paris, which comprehended functions analogous to those of prefect, mayor, and receiver-general, became a purchasable office, filled sometimes by two provosts at a time. The burghers no longer found justice or security in the city where the king resided. At his return from his first crusade, Louis recognized the necessity for applying a remedy to this evil. The provostship ceased to be a purchasable office, and he made it separate from the receivership of the royal domain. In 1258 he chose as provost Stephen Boileau, a burgher of note and esteem in Paris, and in order to give this magistrate the authority of which he had need, the king sometimes came and sat beside him when he was administering justice at the Châtelet. Stephen Boileau justified the king's confidence, and maintained so strict a police that he had his own godson hanged for theft. His administrative foresight was equal to his judicial severity. He established registers wherein were to be inscribed the rules habitually followed in respect of the organization and work of the different corporations of artisans, the tariffs of the dues charged, in the name of the king, upon the admittance of provisions and merchandise, and the titles on which the abbots and other lords founded the privileges they enjoyed within the walls of Paris. The corporations of artisans, represented by their sworn masters or prud'hommes, appeared one after the other before the provost to make declaration of the usages in practice amongst their communities, and to have them registered in the book prepared for that purpose. This collection of regulations relating to the arts and trades of Paris in the thirteenth century, known under the name of Livre des Métiers d'Étienne Boileau, is the earliest monument of industrial statistics drawn up by the French administration and it was inserted, for the first time in its entirety, in 1837, amongst the collection of documents relative to the history of France, published during M. Guizot's Ministry of Public Instruction. Saint-Louis would be but very incompletely understood if we considered him only in his political and kingly aspect. We must penetrate into his private life, and observe his personal intercourse with his family, his household, and his people, if we would properly understand and appreciate all the originality and moral worth of his character and life. Mention has already been made of his relations toward the two queens, his mother and his wife, and difficult as they were, they were nevertheless always exemplary. Louis was a model of conjugal fidelity, as well as of filial piety. He had by Queen Marguerite eleven children, six sons and five daughters. He loved her tenderly, he never severed himself from her, and the modest courage she displayed in the first crusade rendered her still dearer to him. But he was not blind to her ambitious tendencies, and to the insufficiency of her qualifications for government. When he made ready for his second crusade, not only did he not confide to Queen Marguerite the regency of the kingdom, but he even took care to regulate her expenses, and to curb her passion for authority. He forbade her to accept any present for herself or her children, to lay any commands upon the officers of justice, and to choose any one for her service, or for that of her children, without the consent of the council of the regency. And he had reason to so act, for about this same time, Queen Marguerite, emulous of holding in the state the same place that had been occupied by Queen Blanche, 
was giving all her thoughts to what her situation would be after her husband's death, and was coaxing her eldest son, Philip, then sixteen years old, to make her a promise on oath to remain under guardianship up to thirty years of age, to take to himself no counsellor without her approval, to reveal to her all designs which might be formed against her, to conclude no treaty with his uncle, Charles of Anjou, king of Sicily, and to keep as a secret the oath she was thus making him take. Louis was probably informed of this strange promise by his young son Philip himself, who got himself released from it by Pope Urban the Fourth. At any rate, the king had a foreshadowing of Queen Marguerite's inclinations, and took precautions for rendering them harmless to the crown and the state. As for his children, Louis occupied himself in thought and deed with their education and their future, moral and social, showing as much affection and assiduity as could have been displayed by any father of a family, even the most devoted to this single task. After supper they followed him into his chamber, where he made them sit down around him. He instructed them in their duties, and then sent them away to bed. He drew their particular attention to the good and evil deeds of princes. He, moreover, went to see them in their own apartment when he had any leisure, informed himself as to the progress they were making, and, like another Tobias, gave them excellent instructions. On Holy Thursday his sons used to wash, just as he used, the feet of thirteen of the poor, give them a considerable sum as alms, and then wait upon them at table. The king having been minded to carry the first of the poor souls to the Hotel Dieu at Compiègne, with the assistance of his son-in-law, King Theobald of Navarre, whom he loved as a son, his two eldest sons, Louis and Philip, carried the second thither. They were wont to behave towards him in the most respectful manner. He would have all of them, even Theobald, yield him strict obedience in that which he enjoined upon them. He desired anxiously that the three children born to him in the East, during his first crusade, John Tristan, Peter, and Blanche, and even Isabel, his eldest daughter, should enter upon the cloistered life, which he looked upon as the safest for their salvation. He exhorted them thereto, especially his daughter Isabel, many and many a time, in letters equally tender and pious, but as they testified no taste for it, he made no attempt to force their inclinations, and concerned himself only about having them well married, not forgetting to give them good appanages, and for their life in the world the most judicial counsels. The instructions, written with his own hand in French, which he committed to his eldest son Philip, as soon as he found himself so seriously ill before Tunis, are a model of virtue, wisdom, and tenderness on the part of a father, a king, and a Christian. Pass we from the king's family to the king's household, and from the children to the servitors of St. Louis. We have here no longer the powerful tie of blood, and of that feeling, at the same time personal and yet disinterested, which is experienced by parents on seeing themselves living over again in their children. Far weaker motives, mere kindness and custom, unite masters to their servants, and stamp a moral character upon the relations between them. But with St. Louis, so great was his kindness, that it resembled affection, and caused affection to spring up in the hearts of those who were the objects of it. At the same time that he required in his servitors an almost austere morality, he readily passed over in silence their little faults, and treated them, in such cases, not only with mildness, but with that consideration which, in the humblest conditions, satisfies the self-respect of people, and elevates them in their own eyes. Louis used to visit his domestics when they were ill, and when they died he never failed to pray for them, and to commend them to the prayers of the faithful. He had the Mass for the dead, which it was his custom to hear every day, sung for them. 
He had taken back an old servitor of his grandfather, Philip Augustus, whom that king had dismissed because his fire sputtered, and John, whose duty it was to attend to it, did not know how to prevent that slight noise. Louis was, from time to time, subject to a malady, during which his right leg, from his ankle to the calf, became inflamed, as red as blood, and painful. One day, when he had an attack of this complaint, the king, as he lay, wished to make a close inspection of the redness in his leg. As John was clumsily holding a lighted candle close to the king, a drop of hot grease fell on the bad leg, and the king, who had sat up on his bed, threw himself back, exclaiming, "'Ah, John, John, my grandfather turned you out of his house for a less matter!' And the clumsiness of John drew down upon him no other chastisement save this exclamation, "'Vie de Saint-Louis, by Queen Marguerite's confessor, Recuse des historiens de France, page 105, Vie de Saint-Louis, by Lenant de Tillemont, page 388. Far away from the king's household and service, and without any personal connection with him, a whole people, the people of the poor, the infirm, the sick, the wretched, and the neglected of every sort, occupied a prominent place in the thoughts and actions of Louis. All the chroniclers of the age, all the historians of his reign, have celebrated his charity as much as his piety, and the philosophers of the eighteenth century almost forgave him his taste for relics, in consideration of his beneficence. And it was not merely legislative and administrative beneficence. Saint-Louis did not confine himself to founding and endowing hospitals, hospices, asylums, the Hôtel Dieu at Pointaz, and at Vernon, that at Compagne, and at Paris the house of Quinze Vin, for three hundred blind, but he did not spare his person in his beneficence, and regarded no deed of charity as beneath a king's dignity. Every day, wherever the king went, one hundred and twenty-two of the poor received each two loaves, a quart of wine, meat or fish for a good dinner, and a Paris denier. The mothers of families had a loaf more for each child. Besides these hundred and twenty-two poor having outdoor relief, thirteen others were every day introduced into the hotel, and there lived as the king's officers, and three of them sat at a table at the same time with the king, in the same hall as he, and quite close. Many a time, says Joinville, I saw him cut their bread, and give them to drink. He asked me one day if I washed the feet of the poor on Holy Thursday. Sir, said I, what a benefit, the feet of those knaves! Not I. Verily, he said, that is ill said, for you ought not to hold in disdain what God did for our instruction. I pray you, therefore, for the love of me, accustom yourself to wash them. Sometimes, when the king had leisure, he used to say, Come and visit the poor in such and such a place, and let us feast them to their heart's content. Once, when he went to Chateauneuf-sur-Loire, a poor old woman, who was at the door of her cottage, and held in her hand a loaf, said to him, Good king, it is of this bread, which comes of thine alms, that my husband, who lieth sick yonder indoors, doth get substance. The king took the bread, saying, It is rather hard bread, and he went into the cottage to see with his own eyes the sick man. When he was visiting the churches one holy Friday at Compagna, as he was going that day barefoot according to his custom, and distributing alms to the poor whom he met, he perceived on the yonder side of a miry pond which filled a portion of the street, a leper, who, not daring to come near, tried, nevertheless, to attract the king's attention. Louis walked through the pond, went up to the leper, gave him some money, took his hand, and kissed it. All present, says the chronicler, crossed themselves for admiration at seeing this holy temerity of the king, who had no fear of putting his lips to a hand that none would have dared to touch. 
In such deeds there was infinitely more than the goodness and greatness of a kingly soul. There was in them that profound Christian sympathy which is moved at the sight of any human creature suffering severely in body or soul, and which at such times gives no heed to fear, shrinks from no pains, recoils with no disgust, and has no other thought but that of offering some fraternal comfort to the body or the soul that is suffering. He who thus felt and acted was no monk, no prince enwrapped in mere devoutness and altogether given up to works and practices of piety. He was a knight, a warrior, a politician, a true king, who attended to the duties of authority as well as to those of charity, and who won respect from his nearest friends as well as from strangers, whilst astonishing them at one time by his bursts of mystic piety and monastic austerity, at another by his flashes of the ruler's spirit and his judicious independence, even towards the representatives of the faith and church with whom he was in sympathy. He passed for the wisest man in all his counsel. In difficult matters and on grave occasions none formed a judgment with more sagacity, and what his intellect so well apprehended he expressed with a great deal of propriety and grace. He was, in conversation, the nicest and most agreeable of men. He was gay, says Joinville, and when we were private at court, he used to sit at the foot of his bed, and when the preachers and cordeliers who were there spoke to him of a book he would like to hear, he said to them, Nay, you shall not read to me, for there is no book so good after dinner as talk ad libitum, that is, every one saying what he pleases. Not that he was at all adverse from books and literates. He was sometimes present at the discourses and disputations of the university, but he took care to search out for himself the truth in the word of God and in the traditions of the church. Having found out during his travels in the East that a Saracenic sultan had collected a quantity of books for the service of the philosophers of his sect, he was shamed to see that Christians had less zeal for getting instructed in the truth than infidels had for getting themselves made dexterous in falsehood, so much so that, after his return to France, he had search made in the abbeys for all the genuine works of St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Gregory, and other orthodox teachers, and having caused copies of them to be made, he had them placed in the treasury of Saint-Chapelle. He used to read them when he had any leisure, and he readily lent them to those who might get profit from them for themselves or for others. Sometimes, at the end of the afternoon meal, he sent for pious persons with whom he conversed about God, about the stories in the Bible, and the histories of the saints, or about the lives of the fathers. He had a particular friendship for the learned Robert of Sorbonne, founder of the Sorbonne, whose idea was a society of secular ecclesiastics, who, living in common and having the necessaries of life, should give themselves up entirely to study and gratuitous teaching. Not only did Saint-Louis give him every facility and every aid necessary for the establishment of his learned college, but he made him one of his chaplains, and often invited him to his presence and his table in order to enjoy his conversation. One day it happened, says Joinville, that Master Robert was taking his meal beside me, and we were talking low. The king reproved us, and said, Speak up, for your company think that you may be talking evilly of them. If you speak at meals of things which should please us, speak up. If not, be silent. Another day, at one of their reunions, with the king in their midst, Robert of Sorbonne reproached Joinville with being more bravely clad than the king. For, said he, you do dress in furs and green cloth, which the king doth not. Joinville defended himself vigorously, in his turn attacking Robert for the elegance of his dress. The king took the learned doctor's part, and when he had gone, my lord the king, says Joinville, called his son, my lord Philip, and king Theobald, 
sat him down at the entrance of his oratory, placed his hand on the ground, and said, Sit ye down here close by me, that we be not overheard. And then he told me that he had called us in order to confess to us that he had wrongfully taken the part of Master Robert. For just as the seneschal, Joinville, saith, ye ought to be well and decently clad, because your womankind will love you the better for it, and your people will prize you the more. For, saith the wise man, it is right so to bedeck oneself with garments and armour that the proper men of this world say not that there is too much made thereof, nor the young folk too little. End of chapter 18, part 10